Welcome to the Investor Download, the podcast about the themes driving markets and the economy now and in the future. I'm your host, David Brett. Waking up last Friday, you'd be forgiven for having a strange sense of deja vu. We begin our report with the abrupt closures of three banks in a matter of days that are now sending shockwaves across sectors of the economy and raising concerns about the U.S. banking system. It started last week with Silvergate Capital, a big player in the crypto industry. At the end of the week, those with large deposits in Silicon Valley Bank made big withdrawals based on fears SVB was running out of enough money to cover deposits. The fear fed on itself. And by Friday, the 16th largest bank in the nation could not keep up with the withdrawals. Just two days later, New York state regulators shuttered Signature Bank, another victim of the crypto plunge. The collapse of the banks, and in particular SVB, was a painful reminder of what happened 15 years ago during the global financial crisis. Lehman Brothers is going bankrupt. And financial markets from Asia to Europe are doing their utmost to prevent Monday from turning from dark to black. This was another crisis emanating from the US and down to lax regulation. Fears of further contagion were fueled by the collapse of two other US banks, Signature and Silvergate. It roared investors and sent markets on a roller coaster ride. Here we have the 13-week T-bill yield. This is down an astonishing 38 basis points. We haven't seen moves like this, especially in the 10-year, since right after the Lehman Brothers collapse in 2008. That would be September of that year. Now, I want to show you what's happening to the regional banks. This is over the last two days. Some of these moves absolutely astonishing to see on a two-day basis. A lot of these plays relatively uh, stable stocks here. They don't move that much per day. And yet we're seeing moves of 50%. And that's not even including what's happening overnight. So in this show, we're going to speak to two banking experts, Justin Bissaker. I think there's just been a, a regulatory and management failing in the States. I think too many concessions have been made to the smaller banks um, and regulation will get tightened for them. That, that will be the consequence, I yeah. think. And Andre Reichel. I think the the consequence of this is uh, twofold in the US um, and that has a a pronounced impact on, on valuation of stocks as well. About what happened at SVB and whether the crisis can be contained or whether we'll see further contagion. On Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts, you're listening to the Investor Download. So Justin, my question to you first, how does a bank with almost $212 billion worth of assets on its balance sheet collapse? Yeah, it all happened very fast. Um, but actually, you know, the seeds of this were, were sown a few years ago, actually. Um, so Silicon Valley Bank was, was set up to cater to tech and venture capital companies in the 1980s. That was its raison d'etre. And... Obviously, what happened uh, to regional banks in the States in the Trump era was that a lot of the regulation around them was pulled back. Um, so there wasn't any proper regulation of the bank's liquidity, but there was obviously regulation around their solvency. 
and liquidity and solvency kind of go hand in hand. And one of the big lessons of the of the financial crisis was that you can't just look at one. You have to look at both those metrics. So what happened to SVB is, is that basically regulation had been loosened for them in 2018. You then went into the global pandemic, which actually coincided with a period of enormous capital raising by their clients. So their clients were very cash rich. Its clients were some of Silicon Valley's biggest hitters, and they include the likes of Roblox, the online gaming platform, and Roku, the online streaming platform. SVB was a hotbed for venture capitalists or VCs, which invest in and fund a lot of tech startups. So what do these VCs and tech companies do with the cash? They put it on deposit at their bank. So over 2020 and 2021, the deposit base of SVB pretty much tripled. (laughs) What did they do with that money? Well, they actually parked quite a lot of that money out down the yield curve. They bought US treasuries. In particular, they bought about $21 billion worth of 30-year US securities, which accounted for about 10% of their total assets. They were purchased because they were considered safe assets and guaranteed returns or yields. And they bought those for carry, so to to, to run a, a yield on the book, basically. The problem with that strategy is when interest rates rise, and of course, after the pandemic, which was a period of very, very low interest rates, we've had an inflation shock, um, you know, caused by rapid recovery post-COVID and particularly by events in Ukraine. Um, And that inflation shock around the world has meant the central banks have raised interest rates very, very quickly, including the Fed. Today, the FOMC raised our policy interest rate by 25 basis points. Federal Reserve raising its benchmark policy rate by a quarter percentage point to a new range of four and a half to four and three quarters percent. That marks the highest level since October 2007. Now, in their- so the Fed has raised rates now by almost 500 basis points, five percent from the lows. And the problem is, of course, if you own a large portfolio of bonds and you haven't hedged the interest rate risk on those bonds, the value of those bonds is going to fall. And the problem was the value of those bonds was falling at SVB. And at the same time, those deposit inflows were beginning to turn to outflows because these VCs were not able to raise new cash in the market. The market was very difficult and very difficult conditions for the tech industry. Um, And so those deposits which had tripled, began to shrink. And as they shrunk, what could the management of SVB do? They had to start liquidating these securities portfolios at a loss. So you then get to Thursday last week and they decided to announce a capital raise, saying they're going to sell $21 billion, I think it was, of securities, um, basically, which would trigger a loss of $1.8 billion. That really caused a significant dislocation in their share price. Their share price fell about 60% on the back of that because it wasn't a pre-arranged, underwritten capital raise. The money wasn't there at Mm. the point. They just pointed to this being a future hole in the balance sheet and the market lost confidence. And the problem with their depositor base is, of course, it's very concentrated in tech-savvy customers who at the press of a button can suck their deposits out very, very quickly. 
And it's often said, but it's true, that banks don't tend to fail because they run out of capital. They fail because they run out of cash. And that's what happened here. By the end of 2022, it had $175 billion in total deposits. And here is the anatomy of the bank run, right? Just on Thursday, there were $42 billion in withdrawals from depositors, right? So something happened here where people wanted to take their money out and this bank unraveled here. You know, the regulators had to step in at the weekend to buttress the value of deposits in the bank because the bank was literally running out of cash. Last week, when we learned of the problems of the banks and the impact they could have on jobs of small businesses and banking system overall, I instructed my team to act quickly to protect these interests. They've done that. They've done that. On Friday, the government regulator in charge, the FDIC, took control of Silicon Valley Bank's assets. And over the weekend, it took control of Signature Bank's assets. All customers who had deposits in these banks can rest assured, I want to rest assured they'll be protected and they'll have access to their money as of today. That includes small business. You know, so, so it, it was a very, very rapid turn of events. And th this is something that is increasingly common, I think, in the digital era. You know, we're in, you know, a few tweets here and there and we can see huge, you know, billions of deposits move around the system very, very quickly. And if you have a very heavy concentration of high value deposits, so in the US, the FDIC insures deposits up to the value of a quarter of a million dollars. Most of their deposits, 90% or so, were not insured. So, of course, if you have deposits in this bank and you're conscious that there's a bank run going on, the rational thing to do is to join the bank run very, very quickly and get your money out. And that was kind of how the implosion happened. Uh, Andre, from an outsider, how did the management of the company not see this coming? Yeah, that's a good question. And um, I think um, I, I have met um, the management team a couple of times and the first time, maybe like five, six years ago. And I think it is really against the backdrop that um, Justin um, described. Um, if you go back two, three years, it was a small, obscure bank almost. And the balance sheet, thanks to COVID uh, emergency policies in the US and by the Fed, tripled and that propelled them into a very um, a strong position in the league tables of um, banking assets in the US. But the, the mindset of the management team was probably still a bit um, the mindset of a small, very small regional bank. And I think the, the management of that um, capital race really shows that as well. And Justin was mentioning that there was a lot of exposure to uh, long dated uh, bonds and there was also a strong focus on a certain type of customer, basically tech venture capitalists. Is this, is this a case of a bank not realising or not quite understanding they should be more diversified? It's, it sounds like they just needed a more diversified customer base and a more diversified set of investments than what they had. Yes, I think that's, that's right. Um, the, the liquidity management clearly wasn't great. Um, a big difference there between US regional banks and European banks, uh, something we can also discuss. Um, and then clearly the uh, deposit base wasn't very diversified and um, not as stable uh, because the average ticket of the deposits is 4 million um, corporate deposits. And as Justin mentioned, um, 
they were quick to go and now they're even faster to go uh, in the digital banking area. And um, as such, um, a lack of diversification and the mismanagement of liquidity really costed them. Get in touch with us by email at shorterspodcasts at shorters.com or visit our website shorters.com forward slash the investor download. So Justin, I can't have been the only one that woke up over the weekend and shades of 2008 just started to come to mind. I mean, <laughs> how close were we? Are we to that situation and what's being done to prevent this uh, a much wider fallout? So I think this is very, very different to the global financial crisis. Um, so in t- if you think back to 2008, what happened then was that firstly, regulations around capital were far looser than they are today. So the definitions of what goes into your capital ratio have been massively tightened up today. So give an example. So deferred tax assets, so the value of a deferred tax asset obviously depends on your ability to make profits. Pre-global financial crisis, that went into your capital base. Post-global financial crisis, it doesn't. Um, the definition of or the risk weightings of, of assets on a bank balance sheet have, have materially increased as well. So the amounts of capital that banks have to hold today compared with what they had to hold in, say, 2006, 2007, 2008, very different, different order of magnitude. I'm, I'm thinking, you know, probably four to five times higher today, like for like, compared with where you were pre-global financial crisis. The second crucial thing is that there was no real regulation around liquidity and there was no central bank playbook. So if you think about what happened in the UK and it was the first thing that went wrong in the UK in the global financial crisis, it was the failure of Northern Rock. Thousands of Northern Rock savers have queued for hours at branches to empty their accounts. Many more have withdrawn cash via the internet. Despite reassurances from the bank over the safety of their savings, customers have now taken out well over a billion pounds. Many failed to access online accounts because of the massive demand and branches were forced to extend opening hours. How did Northern Rock fail? Northern Rock also ran into a liquidity situation. The Bank of England refused to bail out Northern Rock. Not bail them out in a capital sense, but bail them out by providing them with cash. They decided to make an example of them, which was a slightly strange decision because the Bank of England actually had provided cash to institutions which had had cash shortfalls in the past. It had happened many times. And you'd get a raised eyebrow from the governor of the central bank, but they would advance the money. They'd charge the bank a lot for that. Treasurer would get a big rap on the knuckles, um, but the bank would carry on. So Northern Rock basically was made an example of. It appeared in you know on on the, on the ten o'clock news on the BBC very famously. It triggered a bank run. Obviously, after that, you know the Bank of England and other central banks became very alive to the risk that cash might leave banks. So. You know, central banks now have all sorts of different facilities. And we had a new one, you know, a new four letter acronym last weekend from the Fed. You know, these facilities are there to provide cash to banks when they need it. Because banks have a lot of assets on their balance sheet, which are what we call repurable. You know, the banks can basically, you know, they can borrow based on the value of those assets from the central bank and get some cash back. 
The problem comes, of course, if you have to sell those assets in the market and trigger a loss. And that's the reason why we've had this new facility from the Fed over the weekend that lends at par. The global financial crisis, again, you know, you didn't have this backstop of liquidity from central banks. You had banks with weaker capital positions. And then you had a situation where no bank was sure what the quality of assets was on any other bank's balance sheet or on their own balance sheet. Why do I say that? I say that because the seeds of the problem in the US subprime, in the, in the US subprime crisis are all to do with a fall in house prices. If you are watching us from the last home you'll ever own tonight, consider yourself lucky. Same goes for anyone ready to buy a slice of the American dream. But if you're among the millions trying to sell, this was a very bad day. The National Association of Realtors reported the worst month-to-month -month drop in existing home sales since they started keeping track in the late 90s. And compared to last year, closings are down more than 25%. So if there is a sign in your yard tonight, is there anything you can do beyond hoping and waiting? The fall in house prices, if you step back and you knew nothing about the derivatives market, you'd say, well, look, if, you know, back in 2008, if, if the whole of the US subprime market had gone to zero, the banking system would have lost roughly a trillion dollars sounds like an absolutely enormous amount of money, but relative to the size of banks in the US and globally, it was a manageable but very bitter pill to swallow. The problem was that clever investment bankers had basically invented all these synthetic securities, subprime CDOs. A collateralized debt obligation. It's important to understand because it's what allowed a housing crisis to become a nationwide economic disaster. Here's world-famous chef Anthony Bourdain to explain. <laughs> okay, I'm a chef on a Sunday afternoon setting the menu at a big restaurant. I ordered my fish on Friday, which is the mortgage bond that Michael very shorted. But some of the fresh fish doesn't sell. I don't know why, maybe it just came out. Halibut has the intelligence of a dolphin. So what am I going to do? Throw all this unsold fish, which is the triple B level of the bond, in the garbage and take the loss? No way. Being the crafty and morally onerous chef that I am, whatever crappy levels of the bond I don't sell, I throw into a seafood stew. See, it's not old fish. It's a whole new thing. And the best part is they're eating three-day-old halibut. That is a CDO. They were synthetic, so they referenced an underlying, they referenced a real asset, real mortgages. And they sliced and diced these, and the credit rating agencies gave a lot of these AAA credit ratings. We had the greatest asset bubble in history, and now that bubble is bursting. The single biggest piece of the bubble is the U.S. mortgage market. Amherst had done some financial detective work, analyzing the millions of mortgages that were bundled into those mortgage-backed securities that Wall Street was peddling. It found that the subprimes, loans to the least creditworthy borrowers, were defaulting. But Amherst also ran the numbers on what were supposed to be higher quality mortgages. And they were frankly terrifying as data we'd never seen before. And that's what made us realize, holy cow, things are gonna be much worse than anyone anticipates. So the banks had assets on their balance sheet they thought were AAA rated, and they were worth zero. Seeing this, they knew that other banks would have these <laughs> assets and nobody could size the market because we knew the original market was a trillion, but we didn't know how much bigger than that it actually was. And banking is really a confidence game. It was a confidence game in 2007-8, and it's a confidence game today. 
There is no bank in the world that can survive if every single depositor goes in and pulls out their money. Mm. You know, bank. You always say, you know, banking is borrow short, lend long. You know, that does create a mismatch. That mismatch has value to society because we are able to borrow to buy, you know, to buy houses and take out a mortgage, which you take 20, 25 years mm -hmm. to repay. But you get the house now. You don't have to save up for a quarter of a century to buy the house. So it's a societal good that comes from that mismatch, if you like. But it does mean that confidence matters a lot. And that's where good regulation and good management and prudence are absolutely important. And time and time again, you know, when things go wrong and you look back, what was it that caused things to go wrong? As I said earlier, now one of the things here was very rapid growth. Where you see very rapid growth in a bank, you should be asking questions. Why is it growing so quickly? And as Andre says, you know, if you grow very, very quickly, you may have the wrong management mindset to cope with a bank that is now larger and more complex mm. than it was before. And actually, the regulators may struggle to understand that business properly as well. Because if you think about how regulation works, you know, there's a team of regulators that look at a particular bank. The bank triples in size over three years. It's a much bigger, more complex beast. But maybe there's not any more regulatory provision. There's not more bodies there that are sent out there to look at it and so on. You know, so we have to be very, very careful where there's rapid growth. And we have to be very, very careful where there are economic dislocations, where something changes very quickly, whether in the subprime, you know, in the in the financial crisis, whether it was US house prices or today, whether it's the level of interest rates, which are going up faster than they have done in a generation. Andre, this sounds like a confluence of circumstances, almost a perfect storm for all this to happen. Um, the Fed's jumped in, uh, they've created this fund, and this isn't a taxpayer bailout, this is a, a bank's bailout, but it's done at very generous terms. My question, and probably quite a lot of people, the man on the street, they understand the fact that they can't have banks collapsing because you can't get money out. And I know this one doesn't directly uh, relate to people on the street, but they'll also be thinking, is this another case of uh, policymakers doing what it takes to rescue bankers, who in this case, the management SVB have made a mistake and setting a bad example for the market that we're going to come and just save you whatever again? Or is this a completely different uh, situation? Um, I mean, I can certainly understand the um, um, you know questions around moral hazard here because it looks a bit like it for sure. Um, at the same time, I think there are certain risks that um, one, two, three banks becomes five, six or seven and then um, it doesn't become moral hazard. It becomes a real economic problem for everyone. And I think there is a fine balance between always letting some go under um, and as an example, uh, Silvergate went under without any help. Um, so that is on the bondholders and the equity holders to, to swallow. Um, but there is certainly a limit as to how much the banking system um, can take because then, as Justin said, the confidence evaporates and it doesn't stop with the 20th largest bank in the United States. Mm -hmm. It goes all the way up to um, where mom and pop have their own deposits with Bank of America and so on. So I think this um, facility is limited in size and it is not for free. Um, so there will be some real costs attached to it despite its benefits. And um, it will be um, helping banks, but it will also put the burden on certain banks. Uh, and as a consequence, they will have to rearrange their business model and potentially have to be swallowed regardless. Um, so some of the management teams will probably still lose their job here. So it's not complete moral hazard in that way. Hmm. 
Uh, part of the podcast title is going to be Contained or Contagion. Have the policymakers in the US done enough from what we know at the moment to contain this crisis? I think that um, <clears throat> by the end of this week, we should know um, there are still two or three uh, banks in the US where um, deposit outflows could materially accelerate and then also mean that they will have to be put under the receivership of FDIC. Um, yesterday, it looked like uh, we will see it happening very soon. Today, it seems to be less likely and it really becomes um, uh, a game of hours um, to see where markets and especially depositors settle. Um, but I'm fairly confident that um, even if we have one or two more banks um, that uh, have to fail, um, <clears throat> the facility in place can be slightly changed to make it more powerful uh, and more credible as a, a backstop for um, more banks. So I think that by the end of this week, we will have a solution one way or another. Justin, it's been a roller coaster ride in markets, as mm. you might expect. Um, let's move on to Europe because that's more your focus. Is there any concern around Europe that this might have a, a contagion effect? I think um, so. Undoubtedly, some investors have been selling bank shares. You know, we've we've seen you know bank share prices come under a lot of pressure. I think you know one has to bear in mind that that a lot of European and European bank share prices have done incredibly well. Over the last six months, you know, there's a lot of banks with the share prices that had gone up, you know, 50, 60, 70 plus percent. Um, you know, year on year, some banks, the share prices have doubled. Mm. Um, over three or four years, I've got some banks where share prices have, you know, basically gone up four or five fold. So bank share prices had risen a lot. Um, expected earnings power had also risen a lot. Um, so actually the valuation multiples that the banks were trading on um, at the end of last week, even after that rally, were looking very reasonable, actually, compared with history. They weren't looking elevated at all. Um, but the market likes to shoot first and ask questions later. Um, and we see that time and time again. You know, we saw it with COVID, you know, when bank share prices fell a lot more than the market, and then they re recovered very sharply as it became apparent that there weren't going to be very material credit losses. Um, we've seen that with Russia invading Ukraine again. You know, very interesting. You know, the the, the you, if you looked at bank share price performance last year, what did it correlate with? The best correlation you can get that I've seen is it correlated with geographical proximity to Kiev. Um, so the nearer you were to Kiev, the more your share price fell last mm. year and the further away, the better your share price did. What we're seeing at the moment is, you know, there, there's a fairly indiscriminate shakeout. A lot of people are selling, you know, stocks that have done very well with them. People feel that they should be taking some risk off the table. Mm. We've gone 180 degrees on expectations from the Fed within a week. <laughs> Uh, which is amazing. You know, Jay Powell gave his, his testimony last week to the Senate Banking Committee. The market revised up quite significantly its expectations as to where the Fed funds rate was going to go. And now, you know, all those rises seem to be taken off the table by the market and the expectation is that rates may end up falling. Um, the reality is, I think, for European banks is that, you know, European banks today, I think, are in the strongest position that they've been in in my career. 
and I've done this job. I'm now in year 26, so don't say that lightly. Um, but I've seen a lot of crises. I've seen, you know, when I first started, actually, it was the middle of the Asian crisis. Mm. Um, so I've seen mini crises. I've seen big crises uh, in countries and globally, obviously, with the global financial crisis. I've seen investors lose confidence in banks very quickly and regain confidence in banks very, very quickly. I, I think regulation now in, in Europe and the UK is very different to how a bank like SVB is regulated. The liquidity requirements here are much, much tougher. It's properly regulated. To give you a specific example, you know, if you're a UK bank and you uh, had a big influx of deposits and you, you know, what would you do with that money? You would have to park a lot of that into what in regulatory speak we call high quality liquid assets, which is basically cash and near cash. Furthermore, if you own bonds in that liquidity portfolio, they have to be marked as fair value through other comprehensive income in accountancy speak. So they have to be marked to market on a daily basis, and those marks go against capital. Mm. So the situation that happened with SVB cannot happen, actually, to a bank over here with the liquidity requirements that we have here. And there is no bank that I'm aware of of any size in Europe or the UK that has the concentration of uninsured depositors in one particular industry that SVB has. Mm. So it's a very different sort of situation. So I think there is a... There's a crisis going on in US regional banking, for sure. I think there will be some smaller banks who are going to be more challenged as a result of what's been going on, because there's been a consistent lobbying effort for lighter touch regulation for smaller institutions um, to make them, you know, to make it easier for them to compete with the bigger banks. I think, you know, that's going to be a harder thing now to argue for, mm. I think. Um and what the actions of the US authorities kind of show us again is that it's politically unacceptable for depositors to lose money. And so you have to be sure that you have a system that works and where depositors don't lose money. So in the UK, you know, we have living wills for banks. You know, every bank has to write down and document what happens in the event of the bank's failure. How do you repay all those depositors very, very quickly? And there's a hierarchy of losses. Um, basically. And you, you have to throw an awful lot of mud at a bank before it fails these days in Europe. That's not to say it can't happen. Mm. It can happen. But the sort of events that we've seen here, where you have bad treasury management triggering a collapse of a franchise almost overnight, very unlikely. But again, you know, this is an environment where the Fed has raised rates very dramatically. When the Fed has raised rates very dramatically in the past, it tends to find a few wrinkles in the economy. That's the way it works. You know, there are always people who, you know, have taken too much risk. Um, there may be other accidents that happen, shoes to drop. But I don't think this is a systemic crisis. Um, and I don't think that we should worry about the viability of the large banks in the UK or in Europe. And actually, if anything, what is going on will probably benefit them because it will make life tougher for the smaller competitors to win market share and gain the confidence of depositors. I mean, in the UK, you know, depositors are insured to a value of £85,000, in Europe, €100,000. But the reality is nobody wants to have their deposits frozen for one minute. Mm. 
knowing that they might get it back at the week, uh, over the weekend. They don't want that sort of inconvenience and risk. So we have to be sure that the banking system is safe. Um, but as I say, I think regulation has changed a lot. And actually in Europe and the UK, we just haven't seen much loan growth. You know, and actually lots of banks have been deleveraging for, you know, 10, even 15 years. They've been shrinking their balance sheets mm. over time. So again, going back to something I said earlier, you know, banks get into trouble when they grow far too quickly. Mm. You know, here banks have actually been shrinking. And one of the important reasons why the outlook now looks so much better than it has done for most of the last 15 years or so is that interest rates have reverted to a more normal level. And that is really powerful for banks because the problem for banks over the last 10 plus years has been that interest rates have been kind of near zero, or even in the euro area, negative. And that is just toxic for banks' net interest margins. Mm. Year after year, you get net interest income falling and the banks have to keep on restructuring to defend earnings and are condemned to earning very low returns. Where we are now, I don't know where ECB rates or Bank of England rates are going to be in one, two, three years, but I'm pretty sure they're not going to be zero. Mm. They're probably going to be in a two, three percent bracket, something like that. And that's dream time for banks. You know, that is an environment that can allow them to earn you know, double-digit returns on tangible equity, which means they can pay very good dividends to us as shareholders. They can execute share buybacks at super cheap prices in the market today. Um, and they can grow and they can build capital to prepare themselves for the bad times to come. Um, so I don't think we're on the verge of some new crisis. I don't think there's a systemic risk issue going on here generally. I think there's just been a a regulatory and management failing in the states. I think too many concessions have been made to the smaller banks um, and regulation will get tightened for them. That that will be the consequence, I yeah. think. Is that the way you see it, Andre? Yeah, very much so. And I think the, the consequence of this is uh, twofold in the US um, and it has a a pronounced impact on on valuation of stocks as well. So the first one is that um, if your liquidity is higher relative to your security book um, and your maturity transformation comes down, your interest income will come down. So your earnings power will also come down. Um, and as such, your return on assets will come down. And US banks return on assets always looked much higher than European banks return on assets. Now we know why. <laughs> um, so part of that gap will shrink by US return on assets maybe coming down 10 to 20 basis points. Um, and that's one thing. And the other thing is that if you have questions around liquidity and evaluation of securities, you clearly have questions around capital. And as such, it means that um, the past and these multi-billion dollar share buybacks we have seen from the industry overall in the United States, that is um, not really repeatable. Um, and as such, you know, that's, that clearly also has an impact on, on valuation if you can't buy back your own shares to the same extent anymore. And therefore, I would say, um, relative speaking, uh, it makes European bank shares um, probably more attractive. <laughs> At last. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you.
Justin, we saw at the back end of last year the crisis in the UK gilt market, which was linked to this sudden hike in interest rates. We've got this now. Is it making you think more acutely or is it making you more aware that there could be more issues out there because of the, the pace at which interest rates have risen and the height of which they've risen too? I think, you know, so here here in the UK, you know, the base rate has risen to, to 4%. Um, that is a very manageable interest rate level for most borrowers. It's a manageable interest rate level for the banks. It's like a happy medium. And the assumption is that that's pretty much the peak. You know, we may go up another 25, maybe max 50 basis points, but we're pretty much at the peak. Um, the fear was, you know, until now, that, that central banks would be behind the curve on inflation and that, you know, core inflation was going to become very hard to tame and everybody's looking at core inflation numbers. And if central banks cannot control inflation, they end up having to hike rates by much more than expected. And that is the sort of thing that does trigger recessions and it triggers credit losses and you know, people cannot afford to repay their mortgages because the interest rates mm. are so high. Um, you know, we go back to the early 90s and, you know, the ERM crisis, you know, when, when that exactly that happened. A unique day in London's financial markets ended with the Chancellor announcing that the pound was being suspended from the ERM and that the second of two dramatic interest rate rises during the day was after all cancelled. Today has been an extremely difficult and turbulent day. Massive speculative flows have continued to disrupt the functioning exchange rate mechanism. As chairman of the Council of European Finance Ministers, I have called a meeting of the Monetary Committee in Brussels urgently tonight to consider how stability can be restored to the foreign exchange markets. In the meantime, the government has concluded that Britain's best interests are served by suspending our membership of the exchange rate mechanism. So it is possible that central banks lose control of inflation. And I think, you know, some people are saying that that's it. Now, the events that we've seen in the States with SVB, that means that the Fed won't be able to raise rates anymore. It'll have to cut rates. That's the end of the hiking cycle. I'm not so sure because I think that central banks need to be absolutely focused on getting inflation down. That has to be the number one thing that they are doing. If in the background you get one or two institutions that fail on the back of that, so long as they're not massive, systemically important institutions, that, that can be managed. You know, it's a, you know I, I often meet with regulators and one of the things they say is, kind of like bank failure is a good thing. It's not something we should be scared of. We should be scared of a disorderly bank failure. But we've put in place so many things to make sure that banks can be resolved safely that actually that's just how the market should work. And as Andre says, you know, the risk is that the Fed has, or the US authorities have almost done too much here and there's a moral, moral hazard issue. But I don't, you know, I think, you know, there may be other things that pop up. You can never rule it out given the move in interest rates that we've seen. I'd be quite worried if you told me, look, inflation's out of control. The Fed's going to go to 10% rates. The Bank of England's going to go to 10% rates. The ECB is going to go to 10% rates. That would change things very dramatically. We'd all be fretting about credit losses at the banks and our own jobs and all that sort of thing. Yeah, But 
I don't think that's the world that we're in. Hopefully, we will see core inflation moderating. Obviously, headline inflation is going to be coming down pretty quickly now because we're lapping. You know, we have now lapped the anniversary of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. So, from a macro perspective, those external shocks and what they could deliver to the banking sector, you know, that you know should be all right. And bond markets, you know, if we look at what's happened now, you know, actually a lot of people have been buying gilts, buying. You know, so, some sovereign bonds is almost like a knee-jerk flight to safety. Mm. Um, we'll see what happens with that. But at the moment, you know, actually the level of interest rates has been sort of falling mm. globally. And that that's actually quite supportive to, to, to the health of economies and to the health of banks. Banks don't like zero rates. They don't like super low rates. And they sure as hell don't like negative rates. Um they like rates that are not too hot, not too cold, which is kind of where we are at the moment. And my thinking is we kind of stick there and that should be pretty good for them. Do you agree with that, Andre? I mean, uh, Jerome Powell's credibility is on the line as well. If he suddenly has to go in reverse. Um, I think he will be quite measured and inflation is still something uh, the Fed has to worry about. Um, but I mean, everything I think we have seen here is a consequence also of the um, you know important role that central banks have now in in the treasury um, and in sovereign bond markets, uh, with their massive ownership of those. And as such, um, I'm clearly watching Japan very closely. Um, and this is uh, something maybe for another podcast. <laughs> Well, that was the show. We very much hope you enjoyed it. If you want to find out more, check out our website, schroders.com forward slash the investor download. You can also get in contact with us about anything in the show or ideas for future shows at Schroders Podcast at schroders.com. Please remember to subscribe to us at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, or wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to leave a review. We're now doing one show a week, which will be available every Thursday from 5pm UK time. Thanks very much for listening, but above all, keep safe and go well. Cheers. The value of investments and the income from them may go down as well as up. Investors may not get back the amounts originally invested. Past performance is not a guide to future performance. Information is not an offer, solicitation or recommendation of any funds, services or products or to adopt any investment strategy.